When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the World Soccer Talk Podcast, the only show that talks about watching soccer on TV, online, and on apps. Coming up on this episode, episode six of the podcast, we have a ton of exciting news and an analysis to share with you, uh, including a seismic shift in soccer streaming, given Fubo TV's announcement, our opinions and analysis regarding the MLS Cup final TV rating, news about the uh, UEFA Champions League TV rights in the United States, as well as your questions in our listener mailbag and much, much more. Kartik, what's, what's going on there in uh, Fort Lauderdale? A lot of excitement around uh, the NASL and USL situation. We're not going to talk about that on this podcast. We talked about that enough last week, thinking that it would be over by now, but it's not. So um, it, that's, that's the focus of a lot of folks uh, in, in this post-MLS Cup world. And, and that's a great thing about this podcast too. It's kind of a, like a shining light. It's kind of a, it's a breath of fresh air from a lot of kind of the angst and just um, politics and just uh, negativity, whether it's on Twitter or just in general in, in terms of uh, the U.S. soccer pyramid. And just uh, so this this podcast is meant to be kind of more focused on uh, sharing information about how to uh, watch soccer, uh, more more of it hopefully, and uh, where you can watch it uh, online as well as on tele- television. And there's been a lot going on, a lot in this past week. So, Kartik, let's start off with uh, segment one, which is uh, what we've been watching. And uh, MLS Cup Final, let's start there. I had to write down some notes on this one just because, um, I mean, honestly, it was so unmemorable that (laughs) if I didn't have my notes, I probably would would, uh, be at a loss to remember what happened in this match. But... uh, for those who missed it, or, or if you watched it, I mean, to me, it was a really ugly game. Uh, a lot of stop-start. Uh, there were about probably about two minutes of uh, excitement in this match, to me at least. And that was, um, I think, in, in the beginning of the second half, there was about two minutes of kind of back-and-forth uh, breakaways, end-to-end action. Um, but after that kind of stopped and no goals went in, it kind of returned to kind of a very physical game. And then, of course, the the, the save by uh, Stefan, Stefan Fry, uh, incredible world class save, and that was really to me the the shining moment in this match. But um, other than that, I mean, really, it was devoid of much creativity and um, uh, sadly a, a really poor uh, uh, advertisement for Major League Soccer. And uh, it, it really looked like Seattle came to shut down Toronto, uh, in particular uh, Sebastian Jovinko. And it just resulted in a game of kickball, really. It was a boatload of fouls in a very physical game. 
and to me it resembled um, a rugby match. Uh, Kartik, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, look, cup finals, uh, I know, tend to be very cagey. They tend to be affairs where you get a lot of nil-nil games or one-nil games and very, very few chances, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much on the line. But this game was particularly bad. This is one of the worst games of football I've seen in, in the last few years. I watch a lot of USL and NASL and uh, most of the games in those two leagues, which are lower divisions in the same country or same continent as MLS, are not nearly this bad, this cagey, this physical, this hackish. The thing that really bothered me is, okay, Seattle set up with a game plan, right? Their game plan was to sit deep, to let Asi Alonso in midfield kind of mix things up with uh, the Toronto midfielders and then to allow Roman Torres and Chad Marshall to stay in one-on-one -on -one matchups with Javinko and... Um, and Josie Altador, John Strong kept talk, referring to it on the broadcast as 2v2, uh, which it was, uh, and, and just used their physicality and reading of the game and starting very deep. And Brad Friedel kept mentioning how deep, even on set pieces, Seattle was lining up. So that's, that's, that's their game plan. That's a negative game plan. Mm -hmm. However, the key to me is that Toronto, under Greg Vandy, never made any adjustments and got to a point where at, at a certain uh certain point in the match, mental fatigue kicked in more than physical fatigue, and they were just lobbing long balls forward. Mm -hmm. uh, they, there was no creativity. There was no effort to patiently break down Seattle. And uh, to me, that's a massive coaching fail. And if I'm Brian Schmetzer, I do what I do. Well, I do what I did, and you get the penalty kicks, and you take your chances, and they ended up winning. Uh, so I think it's a huge fail for Greg Vanny, huge fail for Toronto FC, and ultimately for Major League Soccer, because it shows that, again, you don't have the kind of creative players on some teams in this league, some of the top teams in this league that you would on top teams in other countries. Now, had FC Dallas been in the final and Mauro Diaz fit, uh, he's one of those guys. If the shoe had been on the other foot, Nicholas Lodero was one of those guys, right? If Toronto had been defending deep and Seattle had been trying to break them down. But Toronto... Uh, does not have that player. Michael Bradley is not that player. Michael Bradley is, is uh, at this point, I'm not sure what he is. I think his confidence is shattered, and, and he's a player that's going to need some major psychological rehab in this uh, offseason and in the next U.S. camp because he, he looks a, a spent force for me. So, um, you know, Fox did what they could, right, with this, this awful game. Yeah, I mean, 120 minutes, uh, and then, of course, with uh, Seattle going on to win the match without uh, having a single shot on goal, uh, it went down to penalty kicks. And uh, they did what they could. I mean, that, that's, that's for sure. But uh, it's just, it, unfortunately, it kind of sets the precedent, uh, I think, at least for future finals, in that it may encourage teams just to kind of sh shut down the other team uh, and play physical and, and get the win. And um, I agree with you regarding Toronto, and, and especially, I think, uh, the latter stages of the, the second half, they seem to kind of get really just... Um, they kept on, kept on getting knocked down and fouled, and I think they were just getting really frustrated, and then they were getting... I think they lost their composure, and, and they weren't able to play kind of their more creative style of football that we've been accustomed to. Uh, it's just a shame because, I mean, the semifinals... Uh, were so entertaining, and it just it just uh, everything was set up for this game to be at least. I mean, that, that's the thing. Finals are cagey. I wasn't expecting a four-three thriller, but I don't know. Maybe one-nil. Maybe maybe a two-one or something like that. It just it just it was just. If I hadn't, if I didn't have to watch this match, I would have switched it off. It, it was. I was just. I had my finger on the remote control. I'm like, okay, ah, I can be watching something else, but I have to watch this because I have to see. I mean, I have to report on it. It's it's my work. 
Um, right. And, and uh, I missed the 30 for 30 on the Miami Notre Dame game, the Catholics versus convicts to watch this game. And I still regret that because I still haven't watched the documentary <laughs> film and everybody's raving about it. Right. So, so what we've been watching, so what else, Kartik? I, I know Premier League Sunday uh, debuted uh, this past weekend. Did you get a chance to watch that? Yeah, I watched the uh, United Spurs game and, and watched uh, a lot of Liverpool-West Ham. Not the entire Liverpool-West Ham game, but much of it. I watched uh, United Spurs start to finish. There was, um, I think it was subtle. I think it was very subtle about changes unless there was something that I missed uh, in the morning at 7 a.m. when I wasn't up. I got up around 8.45, mm-hmm. uh, 8.30, had breakfast, knowing that the uh, Spurs-United game was starting at 9.15, and that was the, the main attraction of the, of the entire weekend. As it turns out, the main attraction of the entire weekend, because MLS Cup didn't prove to be what we had wanted it to be. So that was the game that I was, uh, I was focused on, and it was subtle. It, Premier League Sunday replaced Premier League Live, uh, or, or yep. Premier League in the graphics, but it was just, it seemed like, it didn't seem like there was there was a whole lot to it. Now maybe there are some more changes coming uh, with NBC, or, or there are things I missed because I didn't get to catch Goal Zone. Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to talk about it in a minute, but uh, I didn't watch behind the badge yet. Now I have this all saved on my DVR and will watch it. But okay. uh, it, it's uh, it, it maybe there was more Premier League Sunday references during those programs. Yeah, to me it sounded like in terms of Premier League Sunday, it sounds like more of a a campaign slogan or, or a name to put with it, to make it easier to promote. So, you mean, previously, before Premier League Sunday, what would NBC say about Sunday's matches? Okay, guys, I mean, you don't have Super Sunday, but you've got Sunday's Premier League Live featuring blah, 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 whoever's playing. But, but by just by saying <clears throat> uh, Premier League Sunday, okay, now you know, okay, that's, the, that's those kind of usually stellar matches, I mean, whether it's Man City, Arsenal, or whatever it may be, uh, it's, it's easier to kind of um, package it or promote it. But the, yeah, very subtle changes. The music was different. Um, it didn't really sway me. Um, I missed the opening because it was that early kickoff. I missed the opening. But I've seen the graphics on YouTube. And uh, it really plays up the whole, I mean, to me at least, uh, Game of Thrones. Because it talks about the houses of English football. And it shows kind of United and Liverpool. To me, it's, it's, kind, of just a, it's kind of a rip-off of uh, the Game of Thrones, which they've been doing this past year, digitally anyway, kind of on social media, they've kind of played up that. But um, yeah, it wasn't, uh, I was a little bit dis- disappointed. I was thinking it was going to be more, but like you said, maybe maybe there's going to be some uh, other changes, but so far it's been very subtle. Well, well, Sky has had Super Sunday for years, right? And yeah. goals on Sunday and these sorts of programs that are really not very different than what they do uh, on Saturdays. Now, what, what is different is Monday Night Football mm-hmm. when, when they have it, Sky, right? I mean, there are periods of time where ESPN UK's had it and BT's had it and uh, other broadcasters have had it. But I guess maybe it's a play on the number of big teams that play on Sunday because, yep. uh, again, the Premier League is a made-for-TV league. There are traditional uh, older time English fans who constantly remind me of this and and say, well, this isn't the way kickoffs are supposed to be 3 p.m. on Saturday. There's not supposed to be a game on five at 530 or or whatever time, 430 kickoff on a Saturday, on a Sunday and uh, an 8 p.m. kickoff on on a Monday. All of this stuff is extraneous to kind of the English football culture. So all of that stuff is very television driven. I think Mm -hmm. Those of us in the United States don't necessarily realize that. This, the idea of having these Sunday games, uh, these high-profile Sunday games at the cathedrals of English football, as, as you say, and the Game of Thrones reference, is, is something that is 
created by the, this league, manufactured by this league for television purposes. So I think in England, they had a sense that they had to make it a, a unique television event before NBC here in the States caught on that there's something very different about this than the 10 a.m. Eastern time, 3 p.m. Uh, British Standard Time kickoffs, which are the traditional kickoff times for domestic games in England. Yeah, you, you, you got it right there, Kartik. It's, it's really about packaging the, those games. So it, like Monday Night Football... Premier League Sunday. It's just a, a way to package it, just to kind of compartmentalize it and just easier for them to sell to advertisers or easier to them to promote to uh, soccer fans on social media or banner ad campaigns, wherever, wherever it may be. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, so so in, the, in, that, in that way, it probably works for them and it'll probably uh, be effective. So you mentioned Behind the Badge. I, I did watch that episode, uh, episode three, um, and episode four, which is going to debut, I think, this Sunday, will be the final episode of the series. Uh, nothing really interesting in this one. I, again, it was um, not very eye-opening, and it's, I still look back and think, okay, the Palace one was so well done. This one's done well, too, but uh, it's just less interesting. Um, for those people who don't know the history about Elton John and Watford Football Club... Um, that will definitely be uh, interesting. Um, I, I lived through that, so I kind of remember, remember it very well, but uh, it was nice to kind of re- reminisce with that. But, but again, for people that missed the Elton John angle uh, with Watford, that, that will be interesting uh, to them if, if, uh, if they haven't already seen it. But uh, one more episode to go. Um, hopefully they'll continue this, because I haven't looked at the TV ratings to see how well uh, they've been doing in terms of how many people are watching, but um, it definitely adds a lot of uh, quality... Not just quality content, but perspective. Uh, it makes me feel a little bit closer to Watford in terms of knowing kind of behind the scenes how hard uh, they work and, and how much of a, a figure um, Captain Troy Deeney is. You kind of really kind of get a perspective on, on like how close he is to this team and how he works with the guys and the backroom staff. And he is a really plays a pivotal role. Yeah, they've made a long-term commitment to keep him at the club. So that's and, and especially in a club that has so many foreign faces mm-hmm. and so many guys coming in and out of that club constantly since the Pozo family bought them. I think you get from the documentary a sense of Troy Deeney's importance as uh, an Englishman, as the captain of the club, as a guy who relates to the fans. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's critical, and I and I think this it, it's a good thing he continues to perform at a high level because I think you get to this point eventually, and you got to you're a Swansea City supporter with Gary Monk. At what point do you drop your club captain? Your club captain's a striker, so it's different than having a central defender uh, or a right back as your as your club captain uh, if he's not producing. Uh, it, thankfully, Troy Deeney is continuing to produce because I think he's such an important psychological element of Watford Football Club. I, I would think even if he's not producing goals or cre- helping create opportunities for other players, he's going to continue to be in that team for years to come for that reason. Because it, otherwise, it's a little bit of an unsettled situation when you see player in, player out. I know that they've, uh, they, they, they've highlighted that in behind the badge, different nationalities. Gary mm-hmm. Lineker said something along the lines of 19 different nationalities, I think, in the second episode of, of the series. But it, was, uh, it, it is an issue. <laughs> There's no question about that. So you have to have a guy like Troy Deeney who's the glue, and um, that's that's the kind of uh, figure that Palace doesn't have, right? And, and so it makes right. the documentary a little bit different than um, a Palace club, which uh, 
the, the closest player they had to that, I think, was uh, the Australian uh, Yedinak, uh, who uh, was fa- a fading force last season and is now playing for Aston Villa. So mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, they don't have that player that you can build stories around that that is that connected to the fans. Uh, maybe Speroni at Crystal Palace also is that guy, but he, he wasn't playing last season and isn't playing this season. Yeah, and then on Sunday I got a chance to watch the Roma uh, Milan game, which was uh, pretty, pretty, pretty eventful. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, it wasn't uh, the greatest game, but uh, I enjoyed watching it personally, getting some uh, Serie A uh, viewing timing there. And, and in Kartik, we had the midweek matches that just ended. So we were recording this on a Thursday, so we had the Tuesday and Wednesday uh, games from the Premier League. Any uh, things to point out there? Yeah, I, I was uh, curious. And thought it went very well about NBC's decision to use Liam McHugh on the Premier League studio on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. When Rebecca Lowe's been unavailable in the past, uh, they brought Steve Bauer over from the UK. Uh, or a, a few years ago, when they still had MLS rights and still had the ability to use John Strong, who just knows soccer around the world like the back of his hand, he, you could you could throw him in at a moment's notice, and and he uh, it, provided he was in town, right? Provided he wasn't in Portland, flying in, mm-hmm. having to fly cross country to, to Connecticut, but um, you could throw him in, and, and he could do a credible job. Um, Liam McHugh is a is a guy who does Notre Dame football and does a lot of NHL and. Uh, other sports uh, on NBC mainstream American sports. Uh, so I, I thought, okay, well, this, this may not go very well, right? And, and it seemed like he knows the league or was, it, or, or was really well prepared, was able to handle uh, talking to Neil Ashton uh, on his own two successive days and was uh, generally good with, with directing questions and the flow of uh, conversation between Martino, Kyle Martino and, and uh, Robbie Earl. So this is something I think now you've got a, a mainstream sports personality, a rising star uh, in the NBC sports family that is able, has shown he's able to fill in and do spot duty on the Premier League. Uh, that's interesting. That may give Rebecca Lowe more breaks. This may also allow them to do other, some other things with her mm-hmm. uh, or, and with Steve Bauer. Maybe uh, Steve Bauer stays uh, focused on match commentary, which he's very good at. I mean, I've, I've thrown out the question to our listeners. Do you like Steve Bauer better as a studio host or a match commentator. He does both, but right. should he stick to one or the other? And maybe this is the answer is he's going to be a match commentator, which he's done now uh, two of these games the last few days, uh, including uh, the Everton Arsenal game, which I know you probably want to speak about. Yeah. Yeah. The, the um, McHugh, I, th- I think it was on last season too, I think uh, kind of in not emergency spots, but came in a couple of times, if I remember correctly. And, and at that, 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 time, that time, I thought he was a little bit... Uh, too scripted, like almost it was too apparent that he was reading from the teleprompter. But um, but the, the, yeah, the last few days I think it seemed very uh, very natural. It was able to fit in really really well. And uh, I mean, Rebecca, Rebecca's got a, uh, a young child, a young baby. So I think it's I think it's good to kind of uh, rotate. And uh, in some ways, I'd like to see kind of some rotation there too with uh, the two Robbies and Kyle, and perhaps somebody else come in now and again yeah. just to just to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I think this is a, a continuing uh, a continuing thing. I mean, uh, uh, Robbie, uh, Robbie Musto is very predictable whenever there's a Jose Mourinho game and Mourinho loses, right? He's And I, and I don't think his analysis is wrong because his analysis matches mine. And I think people who are Mourinho uh, fans, be they Chelsea fans or, or Real Madrid fans, I don't think many Manchester United fans are Mourinho fans, but um, they, they, they tend to just – 
even for me, predict, oh, well, on Twitter, he's going to say this and say that about me. And it's the same thing Musto says in the studio. But it's becoming kind of stale, right, kind of predictable. So you want to get another voice in there somehow. I'm not sure who that person is. I think, uh, and I I know we're going to get to this in a little bit, uh, but ESPN and ESPN FC continue to stockpile talent and, and analysts that maybe would be good in the Premier League studio. And it's, um, and Musto, of course, came from there. Musto used to do press pass on ESPN before mm-hmm. they rebranded ESPN FC. The rebranding kind of coincided with NBC getting Premier League rights, ironically enough. I, um, I continue to do this, uh, and, and midweek, the conversation, the give and take between Martino and um, Earl was, was really good with McHugh mm-hmm. facilitating, but I didn't feel the need to right away watch ESPN FC and they're on my DVR and I, I watched them later. But um, oftentimes there is the need for me to, uh, after a Premier League match or after a, uh, uh, a Premier League Monday, watch ESPN FC or even uh, watch the, the clips on ESPN FC's website, which have Steve Nichol or Craig Burley giving some basic analysis some short version analysis of the Premier League games they watched with them standing in front of a monitor without any any highlights mm-hmm. because they're giving different analysis. I'm not saying better analysis, but different analysis than what we're hearing on NBC. Yeah. Yeah, the, the first person that comes to my head as far as someone I'd love to see um, rotate, and I, I, have, I have no problems with the Robbies or Kyle. I just think they're a little bit tired, especially the two Robbies. I mean, they did the, the Olympics... Um, it's like a football player. You know, I mean, they've done, they, they played through the summer. Now they're playing through the entire season. And at times, it just seems that they're making small, tiny little, saying different things that I completely disagree with. And it gives me the impression that they're not watching all the matches. And yeah, really... I, think, I think Martino got a break because uh, of the birth of his uh, child. Yeah. And he's come back. Well, he's, he's really good anyway, but he's come back with some with the kind of analysis we're not, not necessarily getting from the two Robbies. So I agree yeah. with that. Yeah Kyle, yeah, yeah, Kyle's definitely refreshing for sure. Um, the, person, the person that comes to mind is, is Craig Burley. And we know, Kartik, you and I know from going to Stanford, Connecticut, going to NBC Studios, and also going to Bristol, Connecticut, going to ESPN Studios. It's not that much distance between the, the two areas. And like someone like Craig Burley, very strong, opinionated. They might upset the chemistry and, and who knows whether or not ESPN would even allow that but it would be great to have somebody to step in time and again or maybe I don't know Dan Thomas or somebody just to kind of mix it up again the challenge is of course those guys are with ESPN and most of the other ones that probably would would be a good fit are with Fox Nickel, Nickel and Mariner say a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things also Steve Nickel and Paul Mariner on, on the air about the Premier League I think Shaka Islam's fantastic uh, he's the guy I would try and sign up. Well, Burley and Hislop are the two guys yeah. uh, on top of every, anyone else I would try and sign up. Uh, I, Hislop has been with ESPN for so long, though. I, I just think he's part of mm-hmm. the, the institution there. Yeah. yeah, the fabric there. But maybe maybe Craig Burley is available. Now, the question about Craig Burley, Chris, and mm-hmm. this is unfortunate, and I, I'm a big Craig Burley fan. I'm probably his biggest fan out there, is that these there are these uh, – NBC has a contract with the Premier League. There might be people in the Premier League and coaches and players and former players who say, ah, we don't want that guy uh, on, on uh, broadcast of the games. We don't want that guy uh, in the studio analyzing our league because uh, he, he's too negative or too opinionated. And uh, he got some of that when he was still broadcasting in the UK. He got a lot of that. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate, but this is the, uh, this is the way things uh, 
uh, take place in, 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 this, uh, in this society. You can't be uh, overly critical and, uh, and necessarily get away with it. There, there's a certain amount of, uh, of yes, yes, yes factor in things and, and promotion of the league. Uh, Burley said the other day, look, uh, the Premier League at the top isn't very good. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I don't know if that would be tolerated on an on an NBC broadcast, which is sanctioned by the league, right? That's that's uh, the sort of thing I worry about. Yeah, it's definitely something that would come into conversation if they ever did talk to Craig. And and I think personally, at least I like to think so, is that uh, NBC would be saying, okay, well, this is a per- we're not going to uh, censor uh, people's opinions. Um, it is their opinion. That's what they think. Uh, he's played at the in the Premier League at, at a high level. He has the experience uh, with that. I could see that being a factor if it was Major League Soccer. You know, if if Craig Burley was kind of, uh, they were talking about Craig Burley doing MLS games, which would never happen. But if it did, then I could see it being more kind of the politics and kind of MLS stepping down and having a conversation with uh, ESPN and and saying, like, like, we really don't want this guy on the broadcast. Uh, the Premier League, to me, it would be a little bit more hands off. But but again, what do I what do I know? Maybe uh, maybe you're right on that one, Kartik. But you mentioned you mentioned um, the midweek matches. You mentioned the Everton Arsenal match. That was one of the ones I watched uh, on Tuesday. What an incredible match! Oh my God, the ending to that game was one of the best endings I've seen in a, in a long time. Uh, he had uh, Petacek going up, not just going up to try to uh, score from a corner, but he was he was up there in the box for about two or three minutes. He wasn't going back at all. And he was the target. He was the target on the corner. So, and yeah. then he stayed in the box, and then that, of course, uh, led to this just uh, crazy sequence, which NBC did a great job of breaking yeah. down. I'm not quite sure why Ross Barkley didn't shoot. I mean, at that point, if you're Everton, you either take the ball to the corner there uh-huh. after Lukaku does a great job of fending off Bellerine and winning that ball, or you put a shot on target. And they didn't do either. I think they were they were of two minds thinking you do one or the other. Which do we do? Which do we? Which do we do? And gave Arsenal 20 or 30 seconds, no real threat, but gave them the ball back. Whereas you could have seen the game out one way or another. Finish the game with a goal or finished the game in the corner and drawn a, and drawn a corner and just pl- kept the ball there for the rest of uh, stoppage time. Yeah, and then, and then there was the penalty claim. There was kind of like a, like a late, like within the last minute of the game. It looked like it could have been a penalty, at least in from the angle that we saw. And then on, on replay, a uh, penalty for, uh, for Arsenal. On the replay, yeah. it looked 50-50. It wasn't uh, very conclusive. So. See, the thing is with those 50-50s, and I think it probably, I ear towards thinking it probably was a penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, I lean towards that thing, that position in a wild, crazy game at Goodison. You have to just put yourself in the referee's yeah. shoes. 2-1 in stoppage time. You're not <laughs> going to make that call. Whereas 2-1 Everton in the 65th minute, eh, even at Goodison, you might make that call. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there would have been a riot if, if that was a penalty there. But, yeah, what a match. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. It was a good, great, uh, great highlight uh, of this past week. And then uh, Wednesday, I watched the West Brom-Swansea game. Um, the, from a personal perspective, I, I'll, I'll just share this. But uh, the first half of that match, and probably hardly anyone saw this that is listening, from the first half of the match, that was honestly the best uh, Swansea City possession performance of the entire season. They controlled uh, the first half, uh, kept possession, did extraordinarily well, lot passing with confidence. But again, they, they weren't creating anything from it. So it's, and I was thinking to myself, okay, at halftime, Tony Pulis is going to just uh, read the, the riot act against the West Brom players, and they'll come out. 
And in West Brom's the type of team that doesn't care about possession. All they care about is winning, creating chances. And Swansea just did not create the chances. And in hindsight, looking at the match, the biggest difference between the, the, the two teams and the reason that West Brom went on to win the game 3-1 was crossing. So Swansea defensively did really, really well, but each of West Brom's goals, I think all three of them were from headers, from fantastic crosses. Swansea in the same position had probably half a dozen, if not more, crosses from Wayne Ratledge and Jefferson Montero and Angel Rangel. And the crossing was pathetic. Every single cross didn't get into the box. Maybe this is, sorry, maybe this is a subject for a different show, but I think there is a stigma about Americans, right? And a stigma about American managers. And what I've noticed about Bob Bradley, and I don't know if he's reacting to the stigma or he just likes good football, but uh, he's got a team that's fighting relegation that on paper will get relegated, right? They're one mm-hmm. of the two or three worst teams in the league on paper. Yep. And he is trying to play football. He's trying to play them out of it, yep. which is very different than what a Pulis or an Allardyce or most managers in that, that situation would do. I think the football Swansea's producing is better than it was under Gudain. I think it's probably better than it was under Gary Monk, Mm -hmm. but it's not getting the results. So the question is, is Bradley doing it because it's a stigma or is, uh, and he's trying to prove that he, he understands good football and he wants to play good possession oriented football, or is it that he's, um, that's his style, and that style is probably good with a mid-table team. That style is probably perfect for Southampton, but the way, or would be perfect for Swansea a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Swansea yeah. we all know and love, not right. this current incarnation that has been blown up by about three or four really bad transfer windows in a row. So yeah. which he had nothing to do with, but uh, is still on is still what he has to deal with. Um, it's a very good question because I think uh, at some point you'll have the NBC studio team. They're a little bit reluctant to get into the whole Bradley issue because it is an American and he's a pioneer and we all want to see him succeed. Uh, Especially you as a Swansea fan, but me also as American, I really, I mean, I'm watching Swansea as closely as I'm watching any team in the league. Mm -hmm. The question is, does Bradley need to channel some of his inner Pulis or inner Allardyce? Mm -hmm. Because Swansea is trying to play. (laughs) There's no question about it. And in this position, can you play out of, um, this David Moyes is not going to try and play out of this. He's going to organize. Bradley is trying to play. It's, and you see that with even the reinsertion of Leon Britton and, and that sort of stuff. Yep. Yeah, it, it's a great question uh, and a dilemma, really. From me personally, um, I have a lot of issues with people criticizing Bob Bradley. And, and, and actually, Robbie Musto in particular has been really harsh on him. He's been saying, like, hey, okay, here we go, Swansea again, changing, making five changes. They, they can't make this many changes. They need to lock up the defense. And in the last couple of matches, actually, well, the West Brom one was an outlier, but in the last couple of matches, they've been doing better defensively. They, they uh, won against Sunderland 3-0. But I, the problem I have is not with Bob Bradley, but it's with the players. Bob Bradley is setting this team up to succeed, uh, has done extraordinarily well in terms of bringing some younger players in that got no play in time under Guidolin and is setting this team up to succeed. But it's the players that are letting him down, whether it's poor crossing, stupid mistakes in defense. Um, he's setting the team up to excel. The team is letting him down. But, but then, Kartik, it comes back to your question. Maybe now knowing that, maybe he needs to kind of uh, batten down the hatches and figure out a way to not expose the team as much. But... Uh, 
that, that's hard for a manager, though, too. I mean, especially with just a, a few weeks to go in a, in a crucial period of the season. Yeah, and I think the thing that we're finding with Bradley's teams are, or with Bradley's team, is that they concede a first goal and then they concede a second because, again, they're trying to play. And yeah. because they're trying to play, they're trying to get that goal back a little too quickly. Now, David Moyes' team at Sunderland, uh, and Moyes is below uh, Bradley in the table right now, so maybe it's a bad example, but a David Moyes managed team or a Tony Pulis managed team would, would probably just take the 1-0 and then wait for that set piece late in the game to get to 1-1 and smash and grab and, and take the point. Whereas I think Bradley, at least what we're seeing at, at uh, Swansea, and this kind of fits Bradley's career. Bradley is a, is, is a football manager. He's a guy that, um, that admires Saatchi at, at Milan and that kind of football and, and Fabio Capello. He's not a, he's not a, uh, a Pulis by any stretch of the imagination. And now, again, that was in Major League Soccer going up against other MLS coaches in, in CONCACAF where the U.S. had better players and could keep the ball. Mm-hmm. But um, his tendency is to play that kind of football. I, I, I felt wow, Leon Britton, maybe he's shot, but Bradley will find a way to bring, yeah. to bring him back in the team because that's the kind of player Bradley likes. That's the kind of player Bradley's son yeah. tried to be. It's yeah. like a Leon Britton. So that, that can tell you all you need to know. Um, but maybe it's not the best way to get out of this. That having been said, if Swansea gets leads in games mm-hmm. with like they did against Sunderland, they're probably going to see games out. Um, they didn't that Palace game, but that was just a crazy game, and Palace scores more goals than probably any team in the league other than Liverpool and Chelsea, or they're probably third or fourth in goals. So I think there's an advantage in a way to the way Swansea is playing, because if they do get a lead in a game, uh, they're not going to be sitting back with 10 men behind the ball, Mm -hmm. uh, just hanging on for dear life like some of these other teams. So uh, maybe it'll work. So, so Kartik, what about uh, anything else this past week, Uh, ESPN FC or anything else that uh, you watched uh... Yeah, Robbo. It's all about Robbo this week. Stuart Robson um, is in uh, is in Bristol. I, I think it's probably MLS Cup related because uh, he's been on each day this week thus far. I think he probably called the game for Sky, is my guess, or, or was paired with uh, with whoever uh, is Gary Taphouse or whoever called the game, and probably called it from uh, Toronto. So came came down to Bristol after. Mm. And of course, uh, Craig Burley is joking, joked on the year the other day. Maybe there's a there's some sort of restraining order now. Arsene Wenger has got a restraining order against you. <laughs> you can't go with you can't go with uh, five miles of the Emirates or something. And you're not allowed in the old Highbury and all of this uh, as to why he's hanging out in Bristol. But uh, having Robson in studio when Arsenal loses and Wenger, Wenger's teams fail uh-huh. is, uh, you know, it's, it's timing, right? They could have won 3-0 and it would have just been, okay, you know, Robson's saying what he's saying. He, he, he starts out by saying there is something a little different about Arsenal this year, but he gives the analysis that obviously Wenger apologists don't want to hear, but I think the majority of Arsenal fans do want to hear. Mm-hmm. I think the majority of Arsenal fans do subscribe to Stuart Robson's view. And remember, Stuart Robson is an Arsenal man. I mean, yep. there seems to be this is forgotten. Uh, but having uh, Robson in the studio the last uh, few days after an Arsenal defeat, Chelsea's now six points ahead of them, has been really, really good watch, good viewing. ESPNFC has been indispensable. Um, I, I, I wonder why he's... Why he's in the studio, though? Why he's not back? Uh, uh, wasn't back for midweek Premier League games, yeah. uh, for for Premier League productions, or uh, a Bundesliga game? Maybe he'll be back Friday for the Bundesliga game on BT because he tends yeah. to do those from time to time. So uh, perhaps perhaps he won't be in studio today. But it's been 
I, I'm always curious as to why, when he's over here, why he's over here, but uh, I'll take it. It's been very good. Right. Yeah, to me, he's one of the most intelligent uh, football analysts out there. Very, very tactical, very understands the game really well, reads it well. Um, and, and, of course, we've seen that, too, on, on ESPN in previous the last couple of World Cups. To me, he's one of the, the world's best. Uh, if, if anything, very un- underrated. And, yes, if you're an Arsenal fan, you probably either love him or hate him. But, um, yeah, he's, he's top-notch. <laughs> and, and, and see, here's the thing that I think a lot of Arsenal fans who hate him don't realize. He watches a lot of football. Like, for mm-hmm. example, MLS, he's able to speak very intelligently about uh, and, and talk about the league. He watches a lot of MLS. He calls games. Uh, same thing with the Bundesliga. He watches a lot of Italy. He watches a lot of Spain. I'm not sure where he finds all the time to watch these games. Uh, yeah. But he's he's able to kind of contrast what Wenger does. So many people who watch Wenger, who are Arsenal fans and, and continue to back Wenger, watch Arsenal within the prism of the Premier League mm-hmm. and then just say, well, the teams that always eliminate us at the round of 16, with the exception of Monaco a few years ago, they always have more money than us. So uh, they're better than us. And that's... that's uh, you know, we have our values, we have our principles, right? right. Um, Robson is able to break it down intelligently and tactically in a way that makes Wenger look really kind of foolish. So that's, I think, comes from his experience with watching other leagues, but then also makes him an even more polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Arsenal's defense, I thought that uh, the game against, uh, the loss against uh, Everton midweek, um, actually Everton played, especially in the second half, played very, very well. And you saw that at the end of the first half, too. There was uh, almost a fight in the tunnel. Everton were very aggressive, just trying to stop Arsenal from playing the game, just trying to you know, basically kind of um, disturb their rhythm. And, um, and it worked really, really well. I mean, and uh, other than Koscielny's uh, defensive mistake, uh, failing to cover uh, Ashley Williams, that, could, that game could have ended with a draw. Oh. And, and Arsenal maybe could have got a, a late winner, perhaps. This is something that always uh, happens in these games with Koscielny is that he factors into the result, whether he's losing a guy on a set piece or he scores a a game-winning goal uh, or or game-equalizing goal on a set piece in stoppage time. So that was was interesting. And I also uh, have to say that tends to happen when I play against Arsenal on football manager too, is that Koscielny, you know, it's either his man that uh, for my team that, that, that scores. And most recently I've been playing with Birmingham city or he gets the goal that beats me. So yeah, it's, it's a very funny thing. And then one last item uh, in this, what we've been watching, which has been a lot of great football this past, uh, past seven days, uh, PSG against Nice, uh, which ended in yeah. a two, two tie. And I, and I caught the tail end of that match. It was kind of a feverish end to the game, but uh did you get a chance to watch the whole thing? Carter? Yeah, I saw this. I saw this game. Nice got out to to a lead, and and uh, PSG was able to rescue a point. Uh, on the surface, uh, Lucien Favre may be unhappy that they gave up a lead. Um, at the same time, I think uh, you, you look at this and you, you say, well, they they went to the Park of Princes and they got a point. And they're, they're, this was the game which I think a lot of people thought, okay, Nice is finally going to get beat here by PSG and the league is going to correct itself. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going into the, into the winter uh, break there and um, Nice is, is looking good. And I, and I think, uh, look, win, winter breaks, winter breaks are sometimes exaggerated. The winter break in, in France and Italy and in uh, Spain are not the same thing as it is in Germany. So right. it's really a one-week break, right? Yeah. Um, but I think psychologically that Nice has been able to hang right at the top of the table with PSG and Monaco going into uh, 
Christmas period going into the new year is massive. And you've got a manager in Favre who overachieved at his last job at Borussia Mönchengladbach, really overachieved with that set of players, got them into third place in the league, got them into Champions League, uh, got the sack after a bad start the, ne the next season. Uh, Schubert kept them in Champions League, uh, got them back in the Champions League. But really, it was his handiwork. You can see how he's able to get teams to overachieve. And I, um, I, I think Nice is, you know, we're hoping um, that there is a situation where, um, where the uh, French League becomes more competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Nice is it. Maybe Nice is the story this year if RB Leipzig falls off. Maybe they're the lesser city. So mm -hmm. uh, that, was a, that was an encouraging result. Yeah, yeah. You look at uh, the Premier League, you look at uh, Ligue, Ligue 1. You look at uh, the Bundesliga, it's definitely a lot more competitive uh, at the top uh, this season. So it, it's, it's making it more attractive to watch. So that's always a good thing. So, so segment two, Kartik, let's move on to the TV streaming news. And uh, a huge announcement this week, actually on Wednesday, it was uh, Fubo T TV. And we talked about, about um, T Fubo quite a bit in last week's show. But they've announced plans to add um, a bunch of channels from NBC and Fox as well as uh, NBA TV in a, a game-changing deal for soccer fans in the United States. It's game-changing because uh, the amount of channels it's going to offer at a, what seems to be a really great uh, rate. So just a high level, I mean, they've got BN Sports, BN Sports uh, and Espanol. Uh, they will have NBC in select cities, Fox in select cities, then NBCSN, uh, CNBC, NBC Universo, uh, USA. So from the Premier League perspective, that covers everything except for NBC Sports app. And they're planning on adding that in Q1 of 2017. Um, all these channels, by the way, should be added probably it's looking like January. Or at, least, at least most of them will be added in January. Uh, then you've got your Univisions, uh, you've got your FS1s, FS2. And the big one, this is actually a surprise, is uh, Fox Soccer Plus, which is still alive, still kicking, but it does offer a lot of soccer in terms of a lot of it is overflow, and the games that can't fit on FS1 and FS2, uh, especially during the FA Cup, but also Scottish Premiership, um, rugby, and um, other games too. I mean, Bundesliga games at times also. And then on top of that, you've got Fox Deportes, uh, you've got One World Sports, uh, and then you have um, the regional channels. So the Comcast Sports Network for your area uh, or NBC Sports uh, Regional Network. And also the Fox Sports Regional Network. So for us, Kartik, usually it's what, Fox Sports Florida. We can yeah. get that. Um, so depending on where you live in the United States. And that's a big deal, too, because we've, spa we've found or we've seen with slaying, too, especially with, uh, in Champions League, is sometimes... Uh, there might be a Real Madrid game or a Spurs game that's on Fox Sports Net, so your regional Fox Sports Network. But uh, with Sling TV, um, depending on where you live, you don't have access to your local, um, basically, Fox Sports carrier. So with Fubo, it looks like it's going to be that you'll be able to get, get those channels too, so you won't miss any of the Champions League matches. Uh, and then there's Telemundo on top of that. And then you have a whole ton, a whole slew of um, kind of entertainment and kids channels and um, the Big Ten Network, if you're an American football fan, uh, and I mentioned the NBA TV. Um, it's huge. And all of this stuff is coming out. Uh, it'll be 
on the introductory offer. And then also they do have a smaller package. So if you wanted to get your B in Sports and B in Sports in Espanol, as well as Fox Deportes and the Univisions, you can get that for $14.99 a month. Uh, or if you're currently a, a Fubo subscriber, uh, from what we understand is that uh, the $9.99 a month package that you have now, if you stay a customer and stick, stick with that, uh, that will uh, continue at that price for those channels. Uh, just to let you know one more thing too, we put, a, we put together a FAQ that goes into more detail in regards to uh, when, when this is going to happen, how it's going to work, and all the channels and all the questions and answers, and that's on the homepage of uh, worldsoccertalk.com. Kartik, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a FUBAR subscriber. I, I have the 999 package. I'm going to look at upgrading and looking at those FAQs, and it's pretty exciting. Um, so we will see how, uh, how that plays out because I think uh, it, it gives soccer fans another option to cord cut. It also gives FUBAR the ability to market to people who uh, are not just soccer fans the way Sling has. It is a way of competing directly with sling. And, and I prefer Fubo. I have Fubo. I don't have sling. I, I know a lot of people listening. I think more people listening probably have sling than mm -hmm. Fubo, but, yep. and I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach to you why I have Fubo and not sling, but it does give them the opportunity to, to compete with sling more directly uh, for a, a grander audience and just a niche audience like me. Right. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it all depends what you want. So if you want to get access to the ESPN channels or you want to get access to HBO or um, some of the movie channels or some of the the Disney channels, for example, then Sling or PlayStation View is probably more uh, your cup of tea. But uh, Fubo TV definitely is more soccer centric. Uh, it started as a soccer streaming service and is now branching out into um, news, entertainment, and other sports. Uh, so depending on what you need, it's that could be a likely um, solution. But again, too, we've got a whole bunch of comparison charts, too, on the website, so you can kind of take a look and see which one's the best fit for you. But at the end of the day, it's more competition, uh, and the pricing is pretty attractive, so it's an opportunity to hopefully, um, at the end of the day, get, get, get a better, um, get more for less dollars. So that's a win-win uh, to me. Kartik, uh, some big news over at ESPN this week? Yeah, Julie Stewart-Binks, who actually was the sideline reporter for MLS Cup, uh, has moved to ESPN. She will be doing Soccer Sunday, another branding thing, right? Soccer Sunday, MLS Soccer Sunday on ESPN with uh, Taylor Twellman and uh, Adrian Healy and others. Uh, although, uh, strangely enough, and, and I'm, I'm forgetting the context of this now, uh, but Taylor Twellman and JSP had uh, contradictory reports about a player coming to MLS uh, over uh, over the course of the week, uh, where uh, Twelman said this guy is signing, and JSB said no, this guy isn't coming to MLS. So I can't remember who it was offhand, mm. but that's kind of ironic because uh, uh, Julie Stewart Binks is probably my favorite sideline reporter uh, that does uh, soccer regularly in this country. She um, she had uh, obviously launched with uh, she's got a hockey background, but worked with Sky Sports and. Uh, no soccer launched with that Fox. I can't even remember what it was called that, that show on FS1 oh, yeah. that was, yeah. wasn't very good, but uh, she 
There are sideline reporters who just interview players, right? And they just don't really provide very much. Mm -hmm. She provides analysis. She has her own sources in the game. She's able to, 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 to kind of contextualize things and, and almost add a, a third voice onto a broadcast like she did with MLS Cup. So I think she's going to be very good, very good complement to 12 men and, and Adrian Healy if, if uh, that continues to be the team that ESPN uses on MLS Soccer Sunday. So it's a, it's a fantastic signing. I think it's, a, it's an all-star signing. Uh, who Fox uh, replaces her with, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they have anyone in the ranks that's quite as good at, at, at soccer uh, as she is, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, from personal experience too, we, we know how hardworking she is. So she did the Women's World Cup and traveled throughout Canada, uh, and she's a hardworking person. I mean, I, I know Kartik, I think she, she reached out to you for uh, Copa America. She She's reached out to me for prep on a number of games, yeah, because uh, and, and there are other other people at Fox have not. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, yeah. and I'm not saying I'm the I'm the encyclopedic knowledge of of, of American soccer or, or soccer in general, but uh, she prepares. She prepares yeah. very hard, works very hard, which. Uh, I'm not sure everyone at that network does. I'll just leave it at that. It's yeah, it's a good move for ESPN. My only concern with this is that I just don't. I, I just hope that she doesn't get pigeonholed as a, a sideline reporter. And maybe this is the tradi traditionalist in me, but I do not see much uh, benefit or much worth in having uh, sideline reporters in general. Usually, it's kind of the ads. It's like filler. You I mean John Strong will switch over to right. whoever it is for some additional uh, information. And most of the time, it isn't, it isn't enlightening. It doesn't add to the game. It's just a distraction from the commentary. So as a traditionalist, I, I don't like it. It's very, to me at least, it doesn't have much benefit. But maybe ESPN, maybe she'll have kind of more of an involved role and uh, doing something different. And then maybe at Fox, maybe Rachel Bonetta, maybe they'll try to uh, take her from the digital side and move her over to the TV side. I think she could be a good fit there. But, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of soccer yeah. sideline reporters. Well, right. I mean, maybe Rachel Bonetta is – it's funny. It's one Canadian for another swapping. <laughs> but um, maybe right. that – but she her, – her, her shtick is a little bit different. I, I don't know that yeah. she quite can analyze or give the kind of insight as a sideline reporter that, that JSB does. Mm -hmm. uh, that having been said, maybe Fox wants a more traditional sideline reporter. And, and, and as you've said, and I agree with, that, I don't see that much value in that. Uh, the thing that makes Julie Stewart Finks more valuable is that she gives a certain degree of analysis and perspective, giving uh, chiming in with little bits from the sideline that you, you just don't normally get from sideline reporters. And again, that's because she understands the game and is really well prepared. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's I, I hope she's not pigeonholed as a sideline reporter. I was assuming she would have a big role, but you're right. That's a concern. Hopefully right. ESPN is listening and they realize they uh, – they need to involve them a little more, as we're suggesting. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a good move, though, for ESPN and a good move for, for Julie. Uh, on to the next news item, and, that, and that's something that may or may not have a, uh, uh, an impact on the soccer world, but uh, BBC and ITV, uh, the, the two main channels in the UK, or two main kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, network channels, are partnering up for a US streaming service. It's going to be called uh, Britsbox. And it's going to be providing a lot of uh, content, a lot of programming from the BBC and ITV. What we don't know yet is whether or not that will include Match of the Day. Uh, the challenge with that is that uh, technically they don't have the rights to show uh, matches, uh, streaming, even highlights in the US. So they might black out that, that programming or they may not make it available at all. 
Uh, ITB also has um, a whole bunch of programming too in the UK. I think including the, I think the Champions League too. So it may not have any factor or uh, impact on soccer in the U US. Then again, maybe it will. Maybe we'll get some football focus or some shows like that that you'll be able to watch on BritBox, which I believe is going to debut in 2017 at some point. Kartik, more news from the UK uh, in terms of the business side. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to make of this. Rupert Murdoch is uh, making another bid for Sky, and it's been talked about in the media the last, uh, last day or two. And look, uh, five years ago, five and a half years ago now, his bid went up in smoke. There was massive opposition to it, um, not just among politicians and liberal editorial pages, the Guardian and the Independent, but just kind of universally, you can't allow that kind of consolidation of the media. He's launching another bid to acquire uh, the stake in, in B Sky B that he does not own, and um, I I don't think it'll it'll happen. I just I I think the EU and UK well. The EU, of course, the UK is in the process or is going to trigger the process of Brexit in uh, spring. Uh, in spring of 2017. But I, I just don't think regulators at any level want, want to see this happen or, and are going to let it happen. So uh, it is news. We will be talking about it, but I don't I don't foresee it happening. And it's just something that uh, Murdoch won't give up on. It, it's a strange one, though, too, because, I mean, basically, they're part of the same company already. I mean, they're, they're separate companies, right. but owned by the, the the parent company, owns Fox and owns Sky. But I guess the, you mean, yeah, Fox wants the, or 20, 21st century Fox or 20th century Fox. But there are other, Sky. but there are remaining shares in B Sky B that are, uh, that are not owned by, by News Corp or yeah, Fox. that's true. So... So I think there are more shares that Murdoch or Fox or News Corp, however it's, it's, it's structured, own in B Sky B than any other shareholder. Right. However, he wants to just uh, he or Fox or the corporation wants to just control the, the, the entity completely because there has been there has been pushback in the boardroom against Murdoch and Murdoch's mm -hmm. plans. And uh, for those of you who, who uh, follow politics, Sky News doesn't necessarily have the political bent of Fox News. It, it probably is more conservative than the BBC or ITV, but that's just not saying much. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a, there are some differences in the way programs are presented than the typical Fox in, in the United States or in Australia or companies that are outright controlled by News Corp. So uh, I think that that's very important as you look at things. Okay, so just two more items. I will run through these pretty quickly. So uh, UEFA uh, has started uh, um, bidding or has the bidding uh, open for uh, UEFA Champions League rights around the world. I believe they're starting off in China this week. Uh, the United States is likely to uh, begin the bidding process uh, next year. I'm not sure right now in terms of uh, the timetable on that, but it's going to be for the rights. I believe it's 2018 onwards. Um, and my guess it's going to be a slam dunk for Fox Sports to reacquire them. Uh, I, I, that's, my, that's my educated guess in terms of uh, Fox will continue with those rights. Uh, worldwide, uh, UEFA wants $3.4 billion for the, uh, the rights uh, to the Champions League from around the world. Uh, it's a huge sum of money. Uh, the big change, actually, for 2018 that from, a, from, an, from us, from the viewers' perspective, is that they're going to actually show matches rather than the 245 kickoff and having all the games at 245 they're going to split it up, and they're going to split it up into games starting at uh, one one o'clock Eastern time, and then three o'clock Eastern time. 
So you will be able to watch uh, oftentimes kind of back-to-back games. Of course, there'll be other games on too that you might miss. But uh, that does make it more friendly for the, uh, the East Coast. I mean, you can take a late lunch, go watch your maybe the first half of uh, Arsenal PSG from, from 1 to 1.45 and make it back to the office in, uh, on time. And then uh, last but not least, uh, uh, Sports Business Daily. So uh, one of their chief uh, writers there, John Urand, uh, has predicted that Amazon will get the U.S. streaming rights to the FA Cup, which are currently held by Fox Sports. And John, it, it's, it's almost interesting, too. I don't know if this is a prediction or if this is like an inside tip in terms of some of the information that he has gotten. But uh, that will be interesting with uh, Amazon Prime or Amazon uh, Prime Video. Uh, if they were able to acquire the rights to the Epic Cup. And I, I, yeah. I know Amazon is, is pushing and trying to get into that space. They're trying to get as much on Amazon Prime. Uh, Man in the High Castle, by the way, debuts, I think, second season today or tomorrow. Uh, for those of you who are Amazon Prime subscribers and like that show and like Philip K. Dick, uh, the, the, the writer, that um, is something they're trying to do. They're trying to compile and accumulate properties for Prime streaming. And we will see if they get the FA Cup. Right? It's kind of a potentially exciting development uh, for those of us who love the FA Cup and would like to see more exposure and, and more availability for it on video. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. That could be uh, that could open things up completely. So let's move on to the next segment, which is TV ratings. And of course, the the big one from this past week was the MLS Cup final. Uh, Kartik, do you want to share with the listeners uh, for those who missed it some some of the numbers that came out of this one? Yeah, 1.4 million viewers on the Fox network over the air, uh, Fox affiliates around the United States. Household TV rating was basically a, a, a 0.8, uh, which means that less than 1% of the households in the United States watch that game. Uh, that is 1.4 million viewers, as we said on Fox. Uh, that is a lower rating than what Frosty the Snowman was uh, show, was. Uh, getting on CBS at the same time. And apparently, I, I have to double-check this, I think lower than the 30 for 30 that I had DVR'd mm. on ESPN, on cable. So that um, that's not it's not particularly good. Uh, 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 Mary Poppins' movie it was well, 4 million, right? The Frosty the Snowman? Yeah, yeah, on CBS. Uh, on CBS. And I have to check that 30 for 30, but I believe it might have been more. Um I do, uh, I do think it's important to mention, though, that we had 600,000 viewers on Univision Deportes, which is a good number for that, for, uh, that network. And in Canada, uh, a combined between the two networks that were showing the game, 1.5 million, which is a, a really good number. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there was a Canadian team in Toronto FC, but a really, really good number. Um, more people watching the game in English language in Canada than in the United States. Now think about that for a minute. Let that sink. Uh, so this uh, this is the top-rated MLS Cup final uh, since 2001, which was a daytime final played between a young Landon Donovan in San Jose and the Los Angeles Galaxy on ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, a network broadcast. Now, from 2002 to 2008, the MLS Cup continued on ABC during the daytime, and this game had a higher rating. However... There were MLS Cups played from 96 to, 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 to 2001 that were all daytime games on ABC, 4 o'clock Sunday, uh, 3 o'clock uh, Saturday, that sort of thing right. that got similar ratings. Now, um, MLS in general, in its early, in its infancy, got better ratings than it does now, uh, perhaps because 
uh, of the lack of availability of soccer options abroad, uh, maybe because there was a uh, the, the, the um, and we're going to talk about this in the final segment, so I don't want to get too deep into it right now. Mm-hmm. But there, we were not in these sorts of armed camps as far as our preferences with soccer. Soccer was on. You were a soccer fan. You watched it. Right. That's not the way it is anymore. So uh, the rating in, in, in that perspective is pretty good, but it's not as good as it should have been given the promotion that Fox put into the game. Uh, let's take the Univision Deportes number out from it and say 1.4 million viewers on Fox when they promoted this like it was a, a normal American sporting event, Super a big Bowl. event, like a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, maybe not quite well, not that much, Super Bowl, but, but, but promotion, still. Promotion of a big college football yeah. game, promotion of a, of a big baseball game. And um, it got about as low a rating in primetime television with limited sports opposition. I'm saying ESPN had a 30 for 30 on which I happen to be interested in because it featured the University of Miami, but it's not, it's not something that's going to appeal to masses of, uh, uh, of people around the country. There were no other major live sporting events on at the same time, and it got the rating it got, which is right. about as low a rating as it could possibly have gotten, quite frankly. Yeah, I wrote a piece about this this week, too, on the site and got a lot of comments, and I was saying that basically in isolation, this number is good. In isolation, comparing MLS to MLS... And looking at the number, it's the best one since 2001. Uh, it's, it's an uptick. It's a positive. It's, going, it's moving upwards, which is always a good thing. Um, but then taking it out of isolation and, and then comparing it and putting it into context and comparing it to other things. Um, like you said, context, this is probably actually the first MLS Cup final that was shown in prime time on over-the-air television since, since the league began, so, what, 21 years ago. So, so the numbers should have been much greater. Before, I think, last week's pod, uh, I think I predicted or, or said that it needs to hit 1.5. Well, Primetime makes a difference because yeah. I want to point this out. The 2008 final on ABC was on in the middle of the day. It was on ABC, and it got um, a 0.8 or something. And then the next year, the final was in primetime. The game was played in Seattle. It was on ESPN, and uh, it got about the same number. Mm-hmm. And even though you went from network to cable, it was the, the difference between daytime and primetime. Uh, continue. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I predicted 1.5. Oh, I said 1.5 is kind of the number that they need to hit to, for this to be a success. They hit 1.4, which is pretty close. Um, but, but really, I mean, if this was any other league, if this was La Liga, or if this was the Premier League, or if this was, you name it, any other major soccer league that was being featured in primetime on Fox, Big Fox, on a Saturday night during the winter when it's cold out and most people are indoors, you mean this number would have been probably double that, if not triple that. Uh, in comparison to, I mean, there was the on CBS earlier that afternoon, there was the uh, Army-Navy game. This is college football. This is a whole different category. But just, again, perspective, that was uh, 8 million viewers that watched that game. And, and let me give you perspective on the Wisconsin-Penn State game that was in the same time slot on Fox a week earlier, which had 9.3 million viewers and was going on at the same time as the ACC championship game on, uh, on ABC and uh, something on CBS. Uh, I think, uh, well, maybe the SEC championship game was over. But uh, in any event, uh, against competition, the, the event in the same time slot a week earlier had 9.3 million viewers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from a soccer perspective, I mean, from an MLS perspective, it's, it's a plus in terms of it's at least not a horrible number, it's a decent number, um, but really, 
realistically speaking, it, it could have been and should have been much, much more uh, with a, a golden opportunity. But but MLS has to start somewhere in terms of these numbers, and it's their the first one on Fox over the air, uh, first Cup final over the air. And um, well, well, we'll talk about that in the final segment in terms of where it goes from here in terms of uh, if and how they can improve the ratings uh, in for next season and in future seasons. So, Kartik, let's move on to the listener mailbag. We've got a bunch of questions this week. Um, first one is from J.O., and this is a comment posted on the website. He says, uh, can we please talk about Fox's coverage of the PKs from the MLS Cup final? He says, wow, sloppy, choppy, made it hard uh, to follow with all the switches and angles, disappointing for such a dramatic, albeit crappy way to decide a game ending, ecstatic for the Sounders' win. Kartik, did you did you notice that in terms of the the way that the PKs were covered? Yeah, I, I think um, part of it is is just the way that um, America shoots soccer, quite frankly, um, which is why something you don't notice with NBC because Premier League Productions produces those matches, right? And they yeah. they overlay their their announcers and graphics. So, yeah, it was just it wasn't good. But I, I think it's uh, I think the same mistake could very well have happened on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Or on NBC, or on uh, CBS, or wherever. If it had been, uh, an, if it's a, if it's an American production crew. Yeah, it's and, I, and I say that from personal experience, having dealt with production crews on NASL games who know how to shoot college football or know how to shoot uh, the NBA, but don't really know how to shoot soccer. So I, I, I don't know that that's all on Fox, and that's just a cultural thing. Yeah, and, and just for those listeners who may not remember in their minds or uh, may not have w- watched the match, um, what Jo's kind of inferring or suggesting is that basically, because you had two camera shots, well, probably more than that, but two main camera shots uh, during the penalty kicks in the cup final. One was kind of a handheld camera that was kind of moving around, uh, kind of following the players, uh, going up to the ball. And then the other one was an overhead camera, probably on, on a pulley system, that was kind of a... Uh, perspective of behind the penalty kick uh, kicker and then looking at, at the goal. So you kind of, and we've seen this in the Premier League more and more often in the past, probably the past one season, uh, where you don't get the traditional TV uh, angle for the penalty kicks, but sometimes you've been seeing it from uh, from behind the player and you see the perspective of the goal in front of him and where he, where he hits it. It's very, very different from, for a lot of soccer fans. Um, the other thing, though, is that, um, well, two things. One thing is is that for the final kick, which was was it Ramon Flores that scored the goal, the winning goal for um, the Sounders, Kartik? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for that final kick, they they missed the penalty kick. Well, they showed the close-up of him kind of walking up to take uh, put the, the ball on the spot with the handheld camera, and then they had the overhead camera. But from watching it, you actually missed – they missed him kicking the ball – so you saw him walking up, you saw the close-up, but the close-up was so close-up that you just saw him kind of running, kind of just torso up to kick the ball. So you didn't see him kick the ball. And then the next shot was the overhead shot, and you saw the ball just going into the net. It was kind of a little bit messy, but um, but uh, we can live with it. But the other thing, though, too, is like with, with Fox, now this is a Fox issue, is that uh, different affiliates across the nation, because of the game going into extra time and then going to penalty kicks... Some of the Fox affiliates, not mine local one, but some of the Fox affiliates broke into the penalty kicks and actually broke away for a commercial, came back, you missed one of the penalty kicks. Uh, and also one of the other Fox affiliates, as soon as the game was over in terms of the penalty kicks, they switched back to their normal like, news programming rather than to show the trophy celebration. 
Um, and, and that's definitely a shame. So Kartik, next question is, this one's from Robert, uh, Sunny SoCal, Rob25 on Twitter. And uh, I'll ask you this one, Kartik. Um, you talked about Liga MX ratings on the podcast last week. Do you think an English language SAP would help get higher US ratings? Yes, um, I, it may just be marginal. It might be a niche, but it would definitely, I think, bump up the numbers for the bigger matches by about 100,000, maybe. Uh, and that and that's uh, now is that is that a, a worthwhile expense um, for Univision or for uh, Telemundo or for uh, TV Azteca for whoever mm-hmm. if uh, Fox Deportes if they have uh, if they're getting two million viewers a game or one million viewers a game and you're just bumping it up by sixty thousand or hundred thousand it may not be but I think it w- it would it would help it but they. Yeah the cost-benefit analysis would have to be done by those networks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the other thing, though, too, is like whether or not they'd be able to do it. So we've seen in the past, and this is going back, like, what, two or three years, maybe two years, ESPN started kind of, um, I think, for one season or half a season, showing Liga MX games on, on English-language television late at night. Right. It's usually like 11 o'clock or so they bring on a right, game. Right, it was usually uh, Dan Thomas yep. calling the game with, yeah. uh, with Shaka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Familiar, familiar voices for us. Yeah, and I think, I think actually, I think uh, there's definitely a growing interest, or it seems to be, in Liga MX among English speakers uh, in the United States. And to me, at least, ESPN pulled the plug too soon I think there's an opportunity there for Liga MX to kind of, uh, especially late night soccer, maybe on a Saturday night when there's no MLS games on on national TV, to be able to uh, kind of grow that audience. But going back to Robert's question about about Univision, I guess the, the question I have though is whether or not that's allowed. Who owns the English rights, English language rights to Liga MX? And um, I'm actually going to Univision tomorrow, Kartik. I'm going to go to meet with them for a couple of hours to talk about their plans for 2017. And, uh, and then Robert, that's one of the questions I'll ask him about is in terms of who actually has US uh, English language rights to Liga MX in the US and uh, whether or not that impacts whether or not uh, Univision could, if they wanted to do an English language SAP where someone could listen to audio of an English language uh, game of Liga MX. So I, I'll find out the details and... Uh, I'll probably report on that, uh, if not on the website, on the pod next week. Now, Kartik, uh, this one's uh, from Scott, uh, a regular listener, and he's from uh, McAllen, Texas, and this is just uh, some feedback. He says, after hearing the viewer numbers in the U.S. for the Liga MX uh, Apertura semifinals, I have a question. Aside from the CONCACAF Champions League, could the MLS boost their numbers by some type of tournament or competition with the Liga MX, something like the old Superliga? or possibly the MLS Cup champion versus the Apertura champion, MLS All-Stars versus Liga MX All-Stars. Uh, I believe there is a lot to be gained off of the United States and Mexico rivalry, but I am no expert. I talk to Liga MX fans here, and they are always excited when the two leagues meet. I really enjoyed the USL segment last week just because we have Los Torres here. Can't take your thoughts? Yeah, um... Right, and Scott has RGV in, in town, a uh, Rio Grande Valley uh, team, which uh, is affiliated with the Houston Dynamo, by the way, who were kind of the star American attraction in those days in Superliga. Um, I, I think it boosts ratings temporarily, but I don't know that it gets the kind of buy-in from Mexican-American audiences that you get, uh, that you're going to get 
for MLS that you need for MLS to, to, to really kind of grow the TV product long term. So that's um, that's the an issue. But I do think Soccer United Marketing is working on something like this. So I think it's probably going to happen. I think there's some sort of repackaged Super League is coming back. Yeah, and that was the hope for the CONCACAF Champions League, though, too, is that you'd have, you mean, the biggest teams in Mexico and the biggest teams, well, some of the big teams in MLS competing and getting record TV ratings. And and really, MLS did extremely poor in terms of, for the most part, in terms of, um, you mean, uh, not beating the, the Mexican teams and not making it competitive. Right. So, um, but... Right, and the, and the calendar is misaligned, again. Yeah. I, we're yeah. going to get into this in the next segment, but the... Uh, you always hear excuses from MLS proponents. Well, we're coming off our off season. Well, you don't have to be coming off your off season, yeah. right? We need to have a conversation about the the alignment of MLS to the international calendar, mm-hmm. and that's uh, a pro- that's that's fundamentally until that gets solved, then you're not going to be able to do do what you want with it. And then if you have a tournament like Superliga, which is conforms to the MLS calendar and is handled as a preseason tournament for Mexican clubs, then the results uh, skew the other way. And Mexican, a lot of Mexican-American fans, fans of these Mexican clubs or League MX clubs are like, ah, oh, this is just like a kick around, right? This isn't a real game. Right. So uh, that's the problem. Again, it, it comes from MLS's calendar misalignment. Yeah, and I think, too, I think uh, MLS would be in the, it would be in the best interest to really align more so with whether it's uh, Mexico or South America, rather than Europe in terms of uh, acquiring players, uh, DPs, and bringing through some of these stars into MLS system, rather than some of the aging stars from from England and and Europe. Um, To me, I think there's a lot more akin uh, between MLS and Liga MX. There's more opportunities there to kind of help MLS, I think, than than, uh, kind of the European side of things, where there's, you mean, most a lot of Europeans don't like watching MLS, and again, we'll get into more more about this a little bit later. Um, Going to skip one question and, and move to one from Robert Hay Jr. from Twitter, uh, Kartik, and he says, uh, "If CBS won the rights to a major soccer league or tournament, how would its production compare to NBC, ESPN, etc.?" He says that their streaming platform for college basketball is very good and could translate well if they hired the right talent. Yeah, they had they had the NASL this season actually, and the NASL final was on uh, CBS Sports Network. It wasn't on uh, CBS uh, over the air, but uh, they did a very credible job. I actually did a game for CBS uh, as a, as a color analyst or co commentator. So uh, their production value was very very good, and they they uh, raised uh, kind of the bar for how lower division soccer in this country is broadcast. Unfortunately, that comes with costs and. That's part of the reason the NASL is in the position they are now. They yeah. have to pay for CBS's production costs, which is uh, not like paying for uh, an internet stream, right? It's, it's much better than that. But mm-hmm. I think they do a pretty good job. I mean, just based on my my, my experience uh, doing that one game with CBS, uh, the production, the walkthroughs, the prep, it was all at a much operated at a much higher level than uh, even uh, things did when the the USL were, was on Fox Soccer Channel, and I had some. Uh, involvement in that back in the day, and it, it, this was done at a much higher level. Yeah, I I, I don't get uh, CBS Sports Network on my Comcast, and uh, it's strange because uh, to me, I, I, all I watch is soccer in terms of sports in the United States, and I'll watch some tennis and a little bit of other sports here and there. But it's ninety nine percent soccer. So for me, CBS isn't even on the landscape. I, I, don't, I don't even remember the last time I watched CBS. 
and I, I don't even think of it from a soccer perspe uh, perspective, which, which I think in some ways hurt NASL in terms of also not just the distribution, but CBS to me, I, I know the last year or so, they've tried to push on online yeah, digitally. Yeah, let, let me tell you, this, this was an issue because I think people were looking for games on BN and couldn't find them when they were right. on CBS. Yep. And the assumption... The general assumption was, because NASL also had to deal with BN, and soccer fans find ways to get BN, whether it's Fubo or Sling or their cable package. I think uh, there was a disappointment in a lot of cases when, and again, you're not appealing to a massive audience. You're appealing to a niche of soccer fans and hardcore soccer fans. We're talking about NASL and USL. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, die-in-the-wool soccer people. They're not, they, don't, they, they don't really necessarily interact with the rest of the sports world. And so they have BN and they may not have CBS Sports Network, which is the opposite of the mainstream audience and the opposite of what NASL thought yeah. because they were looking at cable numbers and they saw CBS Sports Network was in 55 million homes and BN's in like 17. But right. the reality is the soccer fan finds a way to get BN because they're watching La Liga or they're watching Serie A also. <laughs> they don't have CBS Sports Network. So it, it yeah. became, I know exactly what you're saying because it became a massive talking point among NASL fan groups. Well, why is this game not on BN? Why is it on this crummy network no one gets? Well, really, like three times as many people get that network, but it's just not in our wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like with CBS, I think the only memories I have of CBS showing soccer, and, and this is probably from YouTube, is I think they did a World Cup in the 80s or maybe early 90s. Or I don't know. Maybe it was a World Cup, probably in the 80s. They, no, they did the, uh, they did the NASL. And, 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 and the NSL, yeah, they, NSL. They didn't have a World Cup. They didn't have okay. A World Cup. okay. So, yeah, NASL then. So I remember um, Paul from uh, uh, Soccer America um, in terms of doing kind of some of the commentary or some of the analysis there from the NASL videos yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, they were, they were linked uh, with NASL, the, the original NASL off and on. There was a couple of years where the NASL went to ABC and Jim McKay did the games, yeah. uh, which was a massive prestige uh, boost for, for the sport. But uh, by and large, most of network TV history for the NASL, the, the game – the league was on CBS. Uh, even in the late 60s, it was on CBS. And then yeah. uh, it came back in the mid-70s when Pele signed. That was uh, first two two or three seasons was on CBS. And then at, at the very end, uh, CBS. But it was uh, they have not had any kind of soccer footprint you know, since then. Uh, with maybe the exception of some college soccer that they've shown on the CBS Sports Network. And uh, I, if I remember correctly... Uh, uh, Daryl Shore, who was the coach of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, he did a game or two for them as an analyst after our season, NASL season, was over a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the college soccer games that they had, uh, the uh, conference tournaments and such. So they've shown a little bit of college soccer, but NASL was their kind of first high-level or pro club soccer experience uh, this season's NASL package since the 1970s. Wow, yeah, which just goes to show in terms of, like, it's strange, really, when you think about it. I mean, NBC... Fox, I mean, um, BN Sports, uh, ABC. I mean, our major players in soccer in the United States and CBS is, is not really, I mean, other than the NASL games here and there, is not even a player at all. And uh, um, Paul Gardner, who's, uh, is, is who I was thinking of as far as the YouTube videos from back in the 80s, kind of him doing some commentary there. That's, that's how far back uh, CBS goes with soccer, at least on, on my kind of uh, wavelength. So one more question, Kartik, and this is from Jamie F. on Facebook. He posted it to facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. He said, it would be amazing to see your site or podcast do a technical comparison of the streams on the diff different platforms. 
he says, I just recently spent a couple of weeks trying Sling and then PlayStation View on a, a, uh, a fast tower PC with plenty of internet speed, watching it in my browser on a 50-inch 1080p TV. Sling was unwatchable for sports due to freezing. PlayStation View was watchable, but still noticeably uh, stroby during uh, fast action. The picture on both seemed blurrier than my cable, and um, so he says maybe my maybe some research into how good a visual product it is for the price. I ultimately bargained my cable company down uh, near the PlayStation View price and kept cable, but I'm open to switching in the near future and keep up the good work. So thanks, Jamie. Um, so yeah, I, I think actually that's a great idea to do almost like a lab test to kind of take your, I mean, take your Sling, PlayStation View, take your Fubo and Yip TV and Fox Soccer to Go uh, and all the other platforms and do kind of a side-by-side comparison t- in terms of picture quality and um, kind of uh, speed and kind of basically all the, all the kind of the check marks, which ones are in HD. Uh, that's something I'd love to do. In the future, if there's any listeners who are listening that are techies that are really into kind of home theater systems and really kind of know the ins and outs of uh, all of this, let me know for sure, because that'd be something I'd be interested in in, uh, working with you to kind of uh, do a test to see which one is uh, the Pepsi Challenge winner. So if you have any questions at all about anything that we've talked about on this podcast or uh, anything in, in particular in terms of watching soccer and television or online, send us an email to web at worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at WSoccerTalk or uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. Kartik, our last segment of the show this week is our featured topic of the week. And um, this one's um, what MLS needs to do to change or improve TV ratings and I understand that uh, we'll be posting a story from you probably probably today, Thursday, on worldsoccertalk.com that goes into more detail, that gives your kind of analysis and insights uh, in more detail. But kind of high level, I wanted to, to kind of uh, ask you what, what your thoughts were in terms of um, how it can change TV ratings and improve them, uh, if at all possible. Yeah, and I think if at all possible is, is an important uh, thing to, to, to point out here, because I think... What we are finding, unfortunately, is that there is uh, uh, hardened opinions of Major League Soccer among soccer fans in the United States. And, and I think to a certain extent, it's unfair. I think to a certain extent, you're talking about a situation where uh, the league has uh, been defined. So MLS proponents go to the mat. They watch every MLS game on national television. They are uh, cheerleading. They, uh, they, they, they uh, push back aggressively against any critique of quality of play, any critique of the way the game is presented, uh, the, the announcers, any of that they push back against. And then you have a camp of American soccer fans who uh, have personal preferences that just don't really match what MLS provides. They're into club football instead of franchises. They're into promotion and relegation and uh, traditional uh, uh, tra- the traditional way the game is organized versus the way MLS uh, organizes it or the way the, the game is organized in the United States. Uh, and they then make uh, judgments about the quality of play and judgments about the relevance of MLS games and the importance and even basically say, well, there's no incentive for players to perform well. There's no incentives for clubs to produce players. Uh, it's just a, it's all a sham. Uh, it's mixed soccer. 
uh, for lack of a better term, and then they won't watch MLS under any circumstance. And they, they will sit, many of them, on Twitter during MLS games critiquing a product that they're not watching. Okay, but then the, the the flip side is the people I mentioned at the outset are people who will defend the product that they're watching, even if the product is sub substandard. So basically, MLS has no room to grow. I mean, the pool of soccer fans doesn't grow in this country every year, but then those soccer fans just kind of split into those two camps. And there is um, there are people in between, like me. I, I think both arguments are. I think we, I, I like watching MLS, and I also like critiquing MLS. Okay, and I think my personal preferences are not. Um, met by MLS, mm -hmm. uh, I, I side with the, the kind of Euro, Euro snob camp, if you want to call them that, uh, or pro rail camp on that. But that does, isn't going to stop me from watching the top league in my own country and watching a league made up largely of American and Canadian players who I have a personal interest in seeing do well. Um, and, and cities where I know soccer fans and I want to see them have success. That's not going to stop me from rooting for those guys at the same time as I make some of the critiques that the other people are making. Mm -hmm. um, but my point is, I think the attitudes are hardened and short of going out and finding a way to get mainstream sports fans to watch MLS, which MLS has continuously failed to do over 21 years. And any attempt to, to, to win over those audiences is doomed to failure. They're not going to be successful. And I, and I want to point out one, one, one quick thing and then get, get your thoughts. There is this view that MLS's quality of play is not good enough to appeal to that mass audience. That is probably true, although it's, I think it's a little bit unfair because the quality of play in general is better than people give it credit for. Certainly not that final, but um, in general. But I think there has to be a recognition, which there isn't among the MLS critics, that if you are doing, you are involved in um, watching the sport, that you are involved in the sport outside the European Union, it is very difficult to construct a high-level league uh, that, mits, that fits people's preferences at this point. We have immigration laws in this country. It's difficult to get. Uh, we have foreign player limits. It's difficult to get 20 or 25 guys on a squad the way uh, you are looking at the, the Premier League and how it's structured. And who knows how the Premier League is going to be structured after Brexit? Uh, because of the Bosman ruling in the European Union, you have free movement of, of, of labor which is the principle under which a lot of people who voted for Brexit voted for it. They're tired of immigrants, right? right. They're tired of people coming in and taking jobs in the United Kingdom. Um, that, and, and then, and then the, the ability for South American players to get European passports if they move to Portugal, they move to the right uh, European EU country, makes it very difficult, very difficult, I emphasize this, for a league outside the European Union to create the kind of structure and kind of... Um, football, uh, in a high-level football, throughout its pyramid or throughout its uh, even first division that the people who critique MLS would like to see. So mm -hmm. I, I just don't think the TV ratings are going to improve. That's, that's me. I know that's a view no one wants to hear, but I think it, it kind of is what it is right now. The, the other challenge, too, is that uh, the MLS Cup final next season is going to be on ESPN. Well, e either ESPN or a ABC, maybe? I mean, I mean so, so the, cha yeah, the I opportunity... Yeah, I don't know that they'll put it on ABC. Yeah, probably. so it's probably ESPN. So the likelihood that uh, the MLS Cup final next season, no matter who's playing, is going to be lower just because um, ESPN's in a lot fewer homes than, than Fox is. Um, but yeah, I, I like your point, too, Kartik, in terms of the two camps. And... and, and completely agree there too where there's the kind of the hardcore MLS fan who's uh doesn't like criticism and is a very very okay MLS is 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 great league it's a growing league 
Uh, I understand that. Then there's the other perspective on the opposite side, which is the camp that said, okay, you mean, I, I just don't like MLS, and then I, I don't watch MLS. I'll go out of my way not to watch MLS. I like you know, the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, whatever it may be, Liga MX, you know, South American leagues. It doesn't have to be European leagues. My, my thing is, is that there's that gray area, that, that camp that's in the middle is actually much bigger than MLS uh, thinks or understands. And that is the area that I think is the greatest opportunity to go ahead and actually grow the ratings. And I think MLS can do it if they confront the issue and uh, make changes. Now, whether they're willing to or not, my, they seem very stubborn. They seem kind of stuck in their ways and they'll make slight changes, but they, they want to keep it their way. Um, but I don't see them going that way. But that way, that includes me. That's someone that, that's given MLS a lot of opportunities, has watched MLS games, uh, wants to kind of get to have a team to watch and follow and watch the league more. But oftentimes, and it's not the standard of quality of play, and it's not pro-rel to me. Those are two factors that, yeah, it would be great to have pro-rel. It's not going to happen under Garber. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but it's not going to happen under Garber. Yes, it'd be great if the standard of play increased, but I don't think the standard of play is that bad, other than the MLS Cup final, but that's, we've already talked about that. But the gray area really is the way that the league is structured, and that is that, for the most part, the MLS regular season is effectively meaningless. It's got a fundamental problem, Major League Soccer, and that is, is that you've got a, 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 an entire season that you have... What, what is it? For this season, I think it's... Um, what is it? What percentage of people actually... 60%. 60% of the 12, teams... There you go. 12 out of 20. Yeah, so for 2016, 60% of the teams are going to make the playoffs. Now, 2017, uh, it's increasing to 22 teams in the league, and that means that uh, the number of people, the number of teams making the playoffs is going to drop to 54%. But still, before you've even kicked a ball... 54% of the teams are going to qualify for the playoffs. So, so what incentive is there to watch the regular season? And, and to me, I mean, you have... Especially when you had a team this year, Seattle was terrible for much of the season. Right, and right, they, right, exactly. And you had a team like Dallas, it's doing football the right way, bringing great, up a great, yeah. lot of great youngsters and players from South America. They're really skillful. And, and this is a great point, and I'll get what you finish in a minute. But Dallas... I want to point this out to people who don't watch the league. Dallas, because the calendars aren't in line, they lost Fabian Castillo, one, probably their second best player, uh, to uh, Turkish club in, at the end of the summer transfer window, which affected their season dramatically because they were cruising. They still won the Supporters' Shield, but they were running away with everything. Uh, they still then win the U.S. Open Cup, the cup competition, because Mauro Diaz, who I think is their best player and maybe the most creative, most, you know, kind of complete midfielder in the league, he um, is healthy and they win that. Then he gets hurt. He tears an ACL in the next to last game of the season, ironically, against Seattle. And um, they still win the supporters' shield. But then they play Seattle in the playoffs and get run off the pitch without Diaz and having sold Castillo. Castillo would not have been sold in the middle of the season if the calendars were aligned with with other leagues. So um, you don't sell your best player or second best player in the middle of the season normally, but that's what MLS has created with its, uh, its um, calendar. And then the flip side is Nicholas Lodero comes in in the middle of the MLS season. Guys like that are not available in January in Europe, uh, but they're available in the middle of the MLS season because that's the primary transfer window for everybody else. Right, right. And, and MLS has tried to kind of apply Band-Aids to try to fix these issues. So they, they've, they've stuck to kind of their... 
um, regularly scheduled calendar for the season, which has been much better. So you know that Friday nights, for the most part, there's usually one or two games on Univision. Saturdays, most of the games are on MLS Live or MLS Direct Kick, so those aren't nationally available. But then Sunday, you've got the early game on ESPN and, and the later game on Fox. And for most for the most part, that has stuck throughout the entire season. So they, they've, they've done that to basically go ahead and improve uh, the TV ratings to have consistent kickoff time so people can expect and uh, get used to having a ritual of watching matches, whether it's Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. So that that's not going to change for next season. Uh, but that, there's that big, huge gray area where people have given MLS a chance before, have watched it, and thought, like, why am I even bothering to watch this? Because, you know, I mean, this game is practically uh, me- uh, meaningless. You had Grant Wall, who's one of the biggest... MLS cheerleaders on, on Fox, and he said that too. He tweeted out, I think, uh, last year, saying he can't think of a meaningful reason why, why fans should watch a regular MLS season game. And that's such a huge portion of, of the season. Imagine if you took the 22 teams in 2017, put them into a single table, had each team play one, one home game or one away game against each of the other teams, and just did it in terms of running a, a title race and see which team ended in first place, and then after that grueling season, rightfully crown that team MLS Cup champions. And then maybe postseason, maybe then, so those teams that qualified, maybe the top top six or top eight, uh, you put into like a US Open Cup and have those teams then compete against the, the other teams that have made it through to that stage from NASL or USL or PDL, and then compete in a US Open Cup kind of postseason and give, give US Open Cup um, kind of more, more, uh, more, more featured, and kind of bring bring it up to speed, so that that people can watch more that more, and then have a U.S. Open Cup champion that's that's crowned in, say, early December or late November. But to me, that's that's the area that MLS needs to focus on: is give us a reason why we should watch the regular season to first to tune in, and where it, each game is meaningful, where it's you mean win or lose. Uh, you're watching those games to see who becomes champion rather than a contrived system with the playoffs. And then you have a team like Seattle that makes it all the way through to the final and wins and is MLS Cup champion crowned by playing ugly football. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I think, though, if you don't have promotion or relegation, you have to have as many teams in the playoffs as possible, honestly, because there's no relevance. There's no any there's no incentive to watch a regular season game if uh, if only four teams make the playoffs because the problem is, and maybe there is on television, you, 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 you pick TV games, you have more flex scheduling and you pick TV games based on, uh, based on who's in contention for those four spots. But in a lot of the MLS markets, now there's not much correlation between attendance and results in smaller markets, second tier markets, and then also in the lower divisions of U.S. soccer. There is a huge correlation between attendance and interest and television ratings and success of teams and and relevance of games in the larger markets. So you either have to have 12 teams making the playoffs to keep people in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, the, the really big markets, San Francisco, San Jose, interested, or you have to go to promotion and relegation. Now, I prefer pro rel, but they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a double-edged sword. This is why this is part of the reason why I don't think they can improve ratings, because then if they drop the playoffs to four or eight teams, there are, de- there are dead rubber after dead rubber after dead rubber, probably in major markets, which then depresses attendance. It may not depress television ratings, but it depresses attendance. 
and MLS becomes an even bigger laughingstock because what we've seen is MLS is successful in places like Seattle and Portland and and Orlando and Kansas City and uh, Salt Lake City, but it's not really successful in New York, L.A., Philly, or, uh, or, or Chicago. And I know people will say, oh, the L.A. Galaxy has been very successful. Uh, in terms of their market penetration in Los Angeles, not really. They haven't been very successful. They have d- good attendances, but there's a niche of fans who watch them. Check out the television ratings for MLS nationally televised games in, L- in the L.A. Basin or check out the ratings for L.A. Galaxy games on national television in the L.A. Basin when they're playing, let's say, uh, Orlando or Salt Lake, one of those teams that has that kind of following. And you'll see that the the number in Orlando is higher, the number in Salt Lake is higher than it is in L.A. So they have a problem in big markets. I think, I think ultimately a lot of this stuff stems from their problem in big markets, and their poor TV ratings stem from their problem in big markets. Yeah, but looking at the TV viewing numbers, though, for um, the 2016 season for MLS, the average viewing audience for the the playoffs and the conference finals, uh, except for the final, so, the, so basically the playoff system, was less than the average for the, the regular season. I so, think that's calendar. I think that's calendar. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 part, part of it's definitely calendar, but I think part of it, too, is just that... Uh, I don't know. It just to me, just the whole playoff system. I, I just don't believe in it. And, and it's either get rid of it completely and just have kind of a regular MLS champion, or if you do want to keep keep teams involved, where you mean even if the top twelve teams, like you said, still have an interest, maybe those twelve teams then move on into U.S. Open Cup and play in that tournament, and that gives that more uh, uh, prestige into that uh, uh, cup, which it needs it, rather than putting them then. Or you create another cup. Or yeah. you create a third cup uh, or second cup right after the season. That's exactly. Possible. Like like a league cup. You mean basically kind of a league cup system where you have uh, some incentive for those teams to place high. Even if they don't win the league, they can go on and play in a kind of a, a final 12 uh, tournament that decides the league cup champion. And basically the open cup is like what? Equivalent to the FA Cup, essentially. So, um, so, so to me at least, I, I know... So MLS can improve TV ratings in the U.S., um, but it needs to it needs to change, and, and I'm not confident that they will will change. Which one thing I think is going to be interesting to see is Atlanta, which is a big market. Uh, they've had an NASL or USL club for years, but they've never had an MLS club, and it's been kind of an indifferent lower division market, basically because it's a huge market. I mean, they hosted the Summer Olympics, for, for heaven's sakes. They got the world's busiest airport. Uh, they, it, it's just a huge place that has never had an, a major league soccer club. They are coming to the league next year, and they're doing things in a very European-slash-South American way. Darren Ailes, uh, late of Tottenham Hotspur, who took Damian Camoli's job at Tottenham when Camoli went to Liverpool, uh, director of football. He's running the operation there. They've hired Tata Martino as the head coach, former Barcelona, uh, Argentina national head coach, uh, a guy who has no coaching experience in the United States. Um, You know, I want to see how Atlanta United... One, uh, brings in this big TV market that maybe the ratings are going to be higher and, and people are going to be more interested in general in Atlanta than they are in New York, L.A., Chicago, or Philly. Uh, and then two, I want to see if that kind of club that is clearly very ambitious and is thinking on a global scale and is competing uh, for players. We've already seen this in a couple instances. Competing for players uh, with uh, European clubs and South American clubs with the likes of Arsenal, et cetera, as has been reported, will 
shift some of those fans in the middle to saying, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll at least watch this team. Right. Um, I, but, but but I think though that uh, it doesn't fix the root problem. So so I, I'm very confident. No, no, it doesn't. No, but it doesn't. I, I'm very ca- confident that Atlanta will do well attendance wise and will create a great buzz in the city regionally in, in terms of regional broadcast. They'll do well. But on a national TV basis, again, if they're playing in a league where, again, where 54% of the teams will qualify for the playoffs, why should the the nation bother watching that league when they could be watching La Liga or, or the Bundesliga or you mean Liga MX, where it's a lot more competitive uh, and more meaningful in terms of you mean trying to win the championship or trying to win whatever it may be? Um, and, and that's the thing, though, too. I mean, you can add teams in Miami. You can add teams in... Sacramento, Minnesota, I mean, go throughout the whole United States and keep on adding teams and adding teams, but it doesn't fix the root problem, which is that the season is me- meaningless for the most part. Yeah, and, 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 and that's right. And, I, and for some reason, Mexico has gotten this balance correct. And they have an even longer playoff tournament than Major League Soccer does, but they're able to, to, to keep their TV audience throughout uh, and maybe it's because they're regular seasons. They've split their seasons, which maybe perhaps this is something NASL yeah. was onto because NASL has done it now for the last four seasons is splitting their season. And that adds relevance to games. Um, although I have to say my critique of the NASL, and I've been very, very vocal with this, is that by splitting the season, uh, if you if you have a couple bad results early, uh, you're out of it. And this isn't like Europe where you have all this kind of built up interest in clubs and being mid-table in, in, in your league is, is respectable and you're fighting relegation. It's almost like the games don't matter if, if you lose your first two or three games in the NASL spring season mm-hmm. and you just retool for the fall. So there, there has to be a balance that's struck, but maybe the Mexican split season is what made, allows people to maintain their interest in their regular season and a ridiculously long playoff tournament, a, tur- a playoff tournament that sometimes is as long as two months. Right, right. And I think from where MLS is standing right now, they're probably looking at all these expansion teams coming in and plus the other teams coming down the pike and looking at these, what, $100 million, $200 million um, fees to join the league. And that's really, I mean, they're seeing growth there. They're seeing uh, great opportunities and a lot of wealth coming in into the league. Uh, but from the TV ratings perspective, I mean, that's one of the, the true barometers in terms of how MLS is doing, not against other sports leagues, but more so against Liga MX or Premier League or uh, La Liga. And La Liga is actually coming pretty close to uh, getting close to the average uh, MLS number. And this is a league that's on, you know, be in sports and be in sports and uh, Espanol. It's not, on, it's not on Fox. It's not on ESPN. It's not on Univision. Uh, and, of course, La Liga, of course, for the most part, is carried with, um, I mean, Ronaldo and Messi and, and Barca and Real Madrid. But Atleti numbers are increasing. So there's a lot of people that are listening and watching those games when they could be watching MLS games, but they're choosing not to watch MLS games. Why is that? Why are the numbers poor or disappointing? And, and to, well, me, to me, at least, it, it, it's, it's the system that they have set up, the, the way that it's played. Um, and well, if, they go, if, if they want to stick to that, numbers will continue to do, decrease. Yeah, I think attitudes are hardened again. I think people have made a judgment. A lot of newer soccer fans have made a ju- snap judgment on MLS, and they are not willing to embrace it. And there are people, I, I have to say this, this is important, and this is something to flush out in the future. There are people who watch uh, NASL 
don't watch a minute of MLS. They have they have complete mm-hmm. contempt for the league, and they'll be watching La Liga. Like I said earlier in the show, all these MLS NASL fans I know have uh, BN Sport, and they have uh, Fubo packages and Sling packages to watch uh, soccer abroad, but they don't watch Major League Soccer. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing on the Sling packet on the Fubo package they won't use is Univision Deportes, because, although they might use it for Mexican Liga MX uh, or, or uh, various uh, other things, but they will not use it for Major League Soccer. And so there is a certain core of domestic fan that has been turned off by the corporatism or the corporate uh, behavior of Major League Soccer. So I mean, they're just they're just splitting the the the, the base the pie, which is not. Again, soccer is a niche sport. I know people cite World Cup ratings right. and ratings for those sorts of things, but it's not that. That's a once in a four every four years, or the Euro final. That's once every two years. Um, it is a club football in this country continues to be a niche sport, mm-hmm. and you're splitting that niche in two, three, four different directions based on uh, some of the choices that Major League Soccer is making. Oh, and also, conversely, by the biases of some of the people watching the sport in this country and their intolerance towards anything MLS does. So that's why I don't think there's a solution, honestly. I mean, yeah. we could bandy about this uh, forever. And I, I just don't <laughs> think it's going to change. I, I, I think there is a solution. I just think that MLS is not willing to go down that path. I, I don't think it's pro-rail, and I don't think it's uh, ne- necessarily the standard of play. I just think it's just the core problem which is just that the, the league is basically meaningless uh for, for the the regular season and then all the focus is on the playoffs and then you mean you got 54 percent of the team's going to make it uh but it's a prolonged uh thing and it, it competes a lot with uh, a lot of the other sports leagues and the, the, the timing is poor so the calendar needs some work but still the regular season needs to improve because otherwise what incentive do you have to watch the playoffs if you didn't watch the, the regular season? I mean, are you really mo- motivated to watch it? Um, and, and MLS is doing a lot of great things. It's doing a lot of things really well. Attendance numbers are do, going up. Expansion teams across the country are doing wonderfully well. Sponsorships are up. Money is pouring into this league. They can afford to go ahead and pay the teams now to go ahead and um, increase the travel budgets to play around the country and play home and away matches and you schedule the calendar in such a way that gives them a bit of a break or go, uh, lets them go on the road a little bit so that, uh, you mean, they're kind of regionally playing games in those areas before they go back to, to their, their home turf so it isn't such a huge slog. Um, but, I don't know, MLS has to realize that there's an issue, and that's the, the, the regular season and just the way that the league is structured. And, and to me, as a soccer fan in that middle camp, in that, that gray area camp, and I'm, rep- I'm sure there's, there's millions of other soccer fans that fall into that, that, that territory, is we'd like to see the league change and improve to give us a reason to continue watching it. Otherwise, it's just, like, it's, it's why bother? I mean, why, why, why not just tune in for, for the playoffs or for the semifinals and, and just watch those exciting matches then? Because for the rest of the year, we can watch these, all these other leagues that are a lot more authentic and, and, and uh, meaningful. So, Kartik, uh, I'll probably end it there if that's okay, but we've got uh, a lot of uh, great uh, discussion today, and uh, I'm sure you, the listeners, probably have your opinions too. So definitely send us feedback, uh, whether you agree or disagree or have some other viewpoints or some other ideas, uh, or if you think we're kind of way off path and, uh, and that MLS will improve TV numbers in the future or not. Send us your feedback at uh, web at worldsoccertalk.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at uh, WSoccerTalk 
or on Facebook at facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. And Kartik, I'll uh, give it over to you. Enjoy your football. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.